We'll hear argument first this morning in Environmental Defense versus Duke Energy Corporation. Mr. Donahue. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Clean Air Act requires that the owner of a major emitting facility obtain a Prevention of Significant Deterioration permit before engaging in a modification, which is defined to include any physical change that increases the amount of any pollutant emitted by such source. Since 1980, EPA's PSD regulations have measured such increases in terms of actual emissions in tons per year. This that, that's yes. a disputed point, I gather, and cent central to the case, whether or not the regulations measured PSD emissions through that device rather than the hourly emissions. That's correct, um, Mr. Chief Justice, but the, the text of the regulations refers pervasively, and I'm referring to the definition of major modification, which is in 40 CFR 51166B2 um, and, and uh, subsequent paragraphs of that regulation refers pervasively to actual emissions and measures emissions exclusively in tons per year. It's a little, a little of an exaggeration, though, to say that uh, that EPA has, since the issuance of the regulations, always interpreted them the way the way that you prefer. Uh, in in fact, uh, the director of the of the PSD program uh, gave two opinions. Uh, in which he took precisely the interpretation that uh, opposing counsel. Uh, yes, Justice made. Scalia, um, respondent has relied heavily on two early applicability determinations. Um, uh, rightly those, so, I think. I mean, it well, was the earliest uh, well, application of, of the regulation by the uh, the officer of the agency, uh, specifically in charge of the program. Well, Justice Scalia, as we point out in our brief, that uh, Director uh, Reich does not adopt Duke's theory, in fact, contradicts it. He doesn't say that a new source performance standard modification must precede a PSD major modification. Instead, in both, he relies on the express exclusion in the PSD regulations for increases in hours of operation and the production rate. And as EPA explained in its contemporaneous preamble, um, that provision, by its terms, is a, an exception from the definition of physical change. It's, it, it's not a provision that says increases attributable to a physical change, uh, to increased hours that are enabled by a physical change are not considered. The plain language of the regulation actually contradicts this reading. The, the, these determinations themselves are quite ambiguous, and, of course, there are two of dozens of, of such um, determinations. Well, what, what, whatever the reason he gave, was it uh, — uh, the, these opinions were out there when, uh, when, the, uh, when the challenge to the regulations uh, in which Duke did not participate, when that challenge was brought, were, these was, were those opinions already out there? Those opinions were out there, but the plain language of the regulation and the preamble, which explained that the increased hours exclusion was simply to allow companies to respond to demand and to link the um, coverage of PSD to construction activity. What we have here is a physical change in the plants, re uh, massive renovations um, of, of these elaborate networks of pipes and tubes that, that compose a central component. I understand um, that, and I think yeah. you, you may have the better of the argument on the, on, on the interpretation of the PSD regulations, but what I'm concerned about is that, uh, is, is that uh, companies can get whipsawed. They, right. they don't challenge right. the regulations when they come out because, as far as they know, the agency is interpreting them in a way uh, that, that they favor. Well, and, then, and then some years later, uh, when, the, when it turns out the agency is using a different interpretation, you have the jurisdictional bar. Well, Justice Scalia, these regulations were challenged early on, and there was a as, as the Court's aware, there was a settlement agreement in 1982 to which Duke was, in fact, a party that proposed to add the hourly rate test that is completely absent from these regulations. But could Duke have had a challenge uh, to the 1992 or 2000 regulations? Could they have reopened the issue at that point? They, they did, in fact, precisely that, Justice Kennedy, and that was resolved in the New, in the New York proceeding by the D.C. Circuit. Duke 
didn't challenge the very prominent aspect of the 1980 regulations, which was to move away from the potential emissions test of prior. I'm, I'm trying. Right. And I don't want to jump ahead to the jurisdictional argument if you want to talk about the modification substantive point first. But uh, it's, it's not clear to me whether Duke should have acted in 1980, 1992, or 2000, or all of the above. Well, the regulations were clear on their face. I mean, to, to determine the effect of that, that's, 307. That's an audacious right, right, statement. Right. In, <laughs> in the we've relevant wrestled respect, with these things for several days. In, in it's the disappointing to hear you tell right, us they're clear. Right, right. <laughs> they're clear in this respect. They did not include an hourly rate test. As, just, as Judge Posner in the Synergy opinion this summer said, um, the argument that the statute mandates an hourly rate test um, is a challenge to the validity of these 1980 regulations because they don't say it. They don't provide for it, and they're very specific and detailed and in t- instead turn on actual annual emissions. And the entire rationale EPA offered was linked to that effort to capture real-world changes in, in emissions. Well, if they're so clear, how can you account for Mr. Reich's interpretation? And he's an expert in the right. area. Right. He, he misapplied. He didn't adopt this theory the, t- the theory that a NSPS modification precedes at all. In fact, he contradicted it. Um, he m- misapplied in quite uh, sort of uh, anomalous circumstances the increased hours. Well, I know you say he's right. wrong, but if somebody in his right. position with his expertise right. can interpret the regulations right. in that way, doesn't that show that they're not clear on their face? Right. We think that this Court can uh, resolve, uh, can interpret, can address the reasonableness of EPA's construction of the increased hours exclusion. What it can't do is certainly what the Fourth Circuit did, which is to say that uh, the PSD regulations must be the same. They're obviously not the same. They're different in multiple respects. And certainly that challenge could have been raised, and certainly that challenge was barred. And, and of course, the Court of Appeals expressly called the regulations irrelevant, the, the text and interpretations of the regulations. That's exactly what a court is supposed to be doing. In, 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 in deciding whether the regulations are reasonable, however, uh, is it proper for a court to uh, take into account that the regulations must follow the prescription of the statute, that the PSD uh, definition be the same as the uh, NS — what is it, NS — Yes, definition. I mean, that's a usual tool of statutory or or regulatory construction. Uh, Cannot a court give great weight to that in interpreting these ambiguous regulations? Well, well, that they're they're not ambiguous as to whether they're identical, and that that to, to hold that they have to be is certainly an invalidation. And the D.C. Circuit, of course held that the statute doesn't require identity as between the two sets of regulations. And we're not here on certiorari from the New York decision. We're here in an enforcement action in which a court leapt over the, the express limitations imposed on it, um, declared the language of the regulations irrelevant, and indeed misapplied them rather dramatically. Well, I don't think the same argument has necessarily to be, ra- uh, to be made, but, but the question still before us is how you interpret the regulations. And, and let's assume that's just a regulatory interpretation question. Right. It's, it's not a statutory right. question. But in, in deciding that, whatever was argued in prior cases, it seems to me that we're entitled to take into account the necessity that the regulations comply with the statute. And, and uh, if they're ambiguous, we should resolve the ambiguity right. in the direction that right. it seems to us would, uh, would, would provide right. uh, uh, consistency with the statute. Now, does that violate the, uh, no. the jurisdictional bar? I have no problem with okay. any of that. If the regulations are ambiguous, take into account statutory text structure policies. What, what the Court below did, of course, was say, uh, it doesn't matter what the regulations say. These have to be the same. It, it for, forgot that, in fact, these regulations are very different. That The D.C. Circuit said there's no statutory mandate of identity. Um, and, the, the, and, of course, uh, respondent was there in the D.C. Circuit. It was permitted to, to assert a challenge to this uh, divergence, as the Court called it, between NSPS regulations and PSD, and the Court said — But if the regulations are ambiguous, then the agency can interpret them in different ways and can change its interpretation right. over time. And, of course, what your friend argues happened here is that right. the agency changed its interpretation right. in 
the context of an enforcement program. Right. Now, accepting that premise, right. what is the what should Duke have done when that interpretation was changed in an enforcement program? Accepting that premise, they could have sought an applicability determination. Duke knew very well what EPA's interpretation was because of the WEPCO decision EPA had been and um, subsequent actions. In fact, Duke's attorneys were vociferously charging that EPA had changed the rules and was acting ultra-virious. Mr. Donahue, were there earlier enforcement actions in which EPA was taking the position that it took in this action against Duke? Well, in the WEPCO decision, I mean, EPA has always taken the position that actual annual emissions is the standard under the 1980 rules. But were they, in in fact, enforcing that standard? So you said that Duke could have asked for a non-applicability ruling, but at the time Duke started up this Certainly. I mean, WEPCO was an applicability determination. That was in 1989-90. Puerto Rican cement was an applicability determination. Um, Duke instead, knowing that EPA believed that increased utilization that is caused by physical change has to be considered under this, as, as is prescribed in these very detailed regulations, Duke decided not to do that, to go, to go forward and, and um, and it didn't, um, in fact, uh, uh, come, to, come to the state or to, or to EPA. Um, and, of course, the increased hours, I understand the Court's concern about the Reich memos, but EPA's construction of the increased hours exception is completely correct under the plain language of the regulations. Um, and in WEPCO, the Court upheld uh, so that there was no question that not only was it consistent with the plain language, but whatever Reich had said, um, the uh, express language of the regulations was was, um, uh, was as far as the exception went. There was there was no um, uh, further confusion if, if those early um, memos caused confusion. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Donahue. Mr. Hungar. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals exceeded its jurisdiction and misconstrued the Clean Air Act in holding that EPA was required to define the term modification identically for the separate NSPS and PSD programs. And on the jurisdictional point, I'd like to address the the whipsaw question, because, in fact, it's quite clear that there's no whipsaw issue here for a number of reasons. Uh, It's true that there are those ambiguous and uh, cursory uh, 1981 statements from Mr. Reich, who was a subordinate official within EPA. In 1988, the administrator of EPA, the head of the agency in the WEPCO decision, the applicability determination, made very clear what EPA's position is on the application of the hours of operation exclusion and the fact that this is an annual tons-per-year test That's at page 44 of the Joint Appendix. He made that perfectly clear, and it has always been clear that that is, in fact, EPA's official position beginning with the 1980 preamble. But again — challenge to that have been brought in the D.C. Circuit at that time, or would you have argued that's too late? It — well, I'm not sure whether it could have been brought at that time, but the fact of the matter is a challenge was brought on this issue in — to the 1980 regulations. True, Duke didn't assert it. But General Motors and the steel industry did assert in the 1981 brief they filed in, the, in that challenge to the 1980 rule. Well, presumably Duke could say we looked at the Reich memorandum and we were following that, and all of a sudden this new 1988 thing came up, and uh, they, they're surprised by that. Now you're saying it's already too late because somebody else challenged it in 1980? Well, they might have that argument, Your Honor, except for the fact that the challenge to the 1980 rules was stayed and was not reopened until 2003. And in 2003, Duke and other parties sought to reopen and were granted permission to reopen that challenge to the 1980 rules. They filed a statement of issues in 1984 and a brief in 1984 challenging the regulation on the ground that if EPA's interpretation was correct and that it did not require an increase in maximum total uh, achievable emissions, as the NSPS test did, 
they argued that it was invalid. They raised the very uh, incorporation theory that they advance here, that is, the statutory argument that Congress was required to follow for the PSD regulations, the same regulatory approach that the NSPS regulations had followed in 1977 with the hourly maximum achievable test. They made that very argument in their brief in the D.C. Circuit in 2004. The D.C. Circuit addressed and rejected that argument on the merits. To be fair to them, that very same argument was more a product of the Fourth Circuit than of Duke. They had a somewhat different approach before the Fourth Circuit, and then the Fourth Circuit came up with this insistence on the parallel construction. Yes. Well, well, I think it's important to distinguish. There are two statutory arguments here. One is what I would call the incorporation theory. That is, the argument that Congress, by borrowing the definition, the statutory definition, also necessarily borrowed and mandated adoption of the regulatory definition from the NSPS program. That argument, the incorporation argument, was made by Duke in its brief in 2004 in the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit addressed and rejected that argument at pages 17 through 19 of its decision in its 2005 New York decision. Why was that rejection wrong? Because this this issue is still important to me for purposes of statutory construction. Is it conceivable that when Congress says the word word, uh, widget in this statute has to mean the same as the word widget in the other statute, that the agency can can effectively frustrate the, the apparent congressional intent by saying, oh, yeah, I mean, uh, yes, that has to mean the same thing, but we can adopt regulations under one statute that's which regulations say it means one thing, and we can adopt regulations under another statute that says it means something else. The, the DC- I mean, it, it, to say that, that, that they have to mean the same thing, it seems to me, means that the regulations have to say they mean the same thing. Your Honor, it is a fundamental principle of administrative law and deference to agency decision-making that when Congress adopts an ambiguous statutory phrase and charges the agency with implementing that phrase, the agency has discretion, has a delegation of rulemaking authority and policymaking authority to choose from among the various permissible Of course it does, but when Congress says that the definition in the two statutes has to be the same, whatever choice the agency makes among those uh, among those options has to be applied to both, it seems to me. No, Your Honor, because Congress has not mandated, as it could have done, that the, that the, that the choice of the specific uh, interpretation from among the permissible options must be identical across both programs. Then it's meaningless to say the definition has to be the same. No, Your Honor. It's utterly meaningless. The statutory definition is ambiguous, but it, it, within the limits of the ambiguity, it imposes constraints on the discretion of the agency. The agency must choose from among the options that are permissible given the range of language that Congress used. But within that range, the agency has discretion. Think of it this way, Your Honor. If there were no PSD program, if we were talking only about the NSPS program, Congress gave an ambiguous definition to the agency, the agency would have discretion to adopt different tests for determining whether emissions increased for different types of equipment, even within that single program, because the statutory definition definition is ambiguous. The statute therefore does not mandate a one-size-fits-all approach, and the agency in its discretion could well determine that one emissions test is appropriate for some types of equipment, another emissions test is appropriate for other types of equipment, as long as both of those tests are within the permissible bounds of the statutory ambiguity, the agency the ambi- is entitled to The ambiguity to that. is the word increase, which, which could mean different things. Yes, that's, Your Honor. That's. The government, as I understand it now, has a proposed regulation that would align the standards with the two programs. It would bring the um, non-proliferation uh, uh, that it would bring the standard for the non-proliferation program in line with the new source performance. With re- yes, Your Honor. With respect to certain types of units, uh, electric generating units like those at issue in this case, that's correct. It would not be identical well, under the proposal, so but it would be similar. Since the government uh, now is now taking the position that uh, another do could do just what was done here, and there's an enforcement action pending. Would you, if you prevailed in that enforcement action, nonetheless enforce, though it's against the current government policy? Your Honor, that, the, the 2005 proposal that you're referring to is only a proposal, a notice yes. of proposed rulemaking. It has not been adopted. So the rules as they exist today are the same as the ones 
uh, we're talking about, although there was a modification in 2002. But, but in any event, what we're talking about here is conduct that occurred from 1988 through 2000 with respect to. Well, what, what exactly are you seeking in, in these enforcement proceedings? An, an injunction to install the BACT or criminal fines or civil fines? These are civil enforcement proceedings, Your Honor. There are various remedies, uh, injunctive relief and uh, civil penalties uh, where appropriate, yes. If, if you have an enforcement proceeding and, and there is a legitimate question of whether or not the agency's interpretation is consistent with the statute, with Chevron deference and so forth, and the Court looks at it and says, you know, I have a real problem with the way the agency interpreted the basic statute when it first uh, issued the regulation. The, the Court can't get into that merely because some, the parties didn't present it earlier? That's it, correct. The that, Court's almost issuing an advisory opinion in a way. No, Your Honor, it, it's not an advisory opinion. The Court is simply precluded from considering a challenge that would invalidate the regulation because that is the determination Congress made in, in requiring pre-enforcement review to avoid the problem of inconsistent determinations and circuit conflicts and, and 700 district judges uh, potentially uh, construing the statute in different ways and tying EPA's hands. And Congress made that determination. Are, are, there, are there other areas in the law uh, where, where courts have to take uh, as, as binding a, a legal proposition that they think is dead wrong when they when they it's quite common the statute? It's quite common, Your Honor, in any uh, regime where review of an agency decision is relegated to the exclusive jurisdiction of one court, as it is here, uh, and enforcement proceedings are brought in a different court. Uh, Hobbs Act agencies, their decisions are reviewable in the Court of Appeals, but often enforceable in the district courts. The district court cannot look behind the, the determination of the agency to challenge its validity because that rests in the exclusive jurisdiction of the Court of Appeals. Obviously, there's a time, timing issue in this statute as well because of the requirement of pre-enforcement review. Whatever, whatever concerns might be raised, in a situation where a party could not reasonably have been expected to challenge it at the time it was originally promulgated or addressed by the after-arising provision in Section 307b1, which permits challenges that could not have been made within the 60-day period to be brought later in appropriate circumstances. And in any event, if there were some concerns at the outer limits of a provision like this one, they have nothing to do with this case, where Duke's challenge, uh, actual challenge to the agency decision the 1980 rule it was heard in 2005, and so Duke had more opportunity than you could possibly ask for to understand exactly what EPA's uh, position was, exact, understand exactly what the uh, regulation meant, and to challenge it in the D.C. Circuit. It, it did so, and it can't do it here. Hang on. I'm, I'm curious. What happens if you have a new company that wasn't around when the regulation was issued? Can it, uh, uh, can it bring uh, a challenge to the uh, uh, conformity of the regulation to the statute? Well, I think that's an unresolved question. Uh, presumably the argument — a nice question. I mean, all you have to do is find a stalking horse. Just just uh, have some new company carry, carry your water for you. Well, presumably the argument would be that, that the, the creation of the company uh, and it, the first applicability of the regulations to it is an after-arising ground. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but certainly it's not presented here. Could you bring it up by a, a declaration of non-applicability? Could the new company how, — how would it — Well, it could seek a, a determination of non-applicability, but — and it could obtain judicial review of that determination, but that would not go to the D.C. Circuit and would not permit a challenge to the regulations. They could, but they could file a petition. They clearly could file a petition for rulemaking with the EPA saying, your regulation is invalid. It's been around for 25 years, but it's still invalid. You need to rescind it. And when the agency declined to do that, they could then go to the D.C. Circuit. In the midst of the enforcement action that's being brought against them by EPA, what are they — what's supposed to happen in the enforcement action? If, well, that's the, if that's the vehicle through which EPA is in, if this, implementing its new interpretation. If this completely speculative and hypothetical situation were ever to arise, a court might well exercise its equitable discretion to stay proceedings pending review in the D.C. Can I ask you about an argument I think they did make? I think they made this argument. On page 26 of your brief, I think it's explained well. You set out the regs. And the reg says that a major modification is any physical change in the method of operation that would lead to a significant net emissions increase. Then you have little three, which is an exception. And it accepts a physical change, which leads to and is just an increase in the hours of operation or the production rate. So that's out of it. 
Now the question is, what's in it? If that's out of it, what's in it? And I think what they've said is, if you think about that, we'll tell you what must be out of it is a physical change that does nothing to increase the capacity, but just means you can run it more hours. And they say that our proof of that is that that was the EPA's interpretation for years and years and years. Indeed, we, we did what we did thinking that was it. And then after we did what we did, they pulled the rug out from under us and said, no, that isn't it. Uh, now it means any physical change, like you change a nut or a bolt or a tube, even though there's no increased capacity to emit more, it's just you run it more hours. Now, that, they say, is basically unfair. It's not what this reg has been about. And they made that argument, according to them, very strongly, and the Fourth Circuit took the argument and changed it all around and made some propositions of law that it's hard for even them to defend. All right. Now, that, that's, that's what I think. That's what I think is, is uh, lying. Maybe that's lying at the heart of it. And if it is, what do you say? There are s- several things, Your Honor. First of all, the language of the regulation simply does not support that interpretation. What the regulation says is that hours of oper- a, a change in hours of operation is not a physical change. Fine. But we have a physical change here. It's undisputed that Duke made physical changes to its facilities, major modifications, or uh, using that term in the uh, non-regulatory uh, sense, but, but substantial replacements of physical equipment at the facility. So physical changes occurred. The hours of operation exclusion, therefore, has no longer any relevance because it applies only at the physical change step of the analysis. There has been a physical change here, regardless of whether hours of operation changed or not. Therefore, the hours of operation exclusion no longer applies. The next question is whether the the physical change that did occur resulted in a significant net emissions increase. Here it did, under the plain language of the regulations and under the test that EPA applies. It is true that in 1981 there were arguably mistaken uh, to the extent one can discern what the regulate, what Mr. Reich was actually saying, uh, they seem to be simply a mistaken interpretation. But in 1988, the administrator of the agency, the head of the agency, made very clear EPA's position, the very same position it's taking here today on the hours of operation exclusion. The, the, the First Circuit in the Puerto Rican cement case, as Your Honor knows, upheld that interpretation in 1989. The Seventh Circuit in footnote 11 in the WEPCO decision upheld that determination in 1990. It was restated by the EPA again and again, and it's well established. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Hunger. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I think I'm inclined, instead of starting with the jurisdictional issue, to focus initially on the regulatory history immediately in the wake of the 1980 rules, because it seems to me it is very clear that that the understanding of everyone in the industry, outside the industry, from 1980, candidly well beyond 1988, all the way up until 1999, was that these regulations didn't apply under any circumstances in the absence of an increase in the capacity. And and you had to demonstrate that there would be an increase in the hourly rate of the emissions. And why were some companies asking for declarations of non-applicability? To confirm precisely that interpretation, that's exactly why GE went to Mr. Reich and asked for a determination of applicability and was told categorically PSD applicability is determined by evaluating any change in emissions rates caused by the conversions. But Mr. Donahue said that there were non-applicability applications after those early ones that came out the other way. So the work no. companies well, who asked for a declaration of non-application and then EPA took the position that it is currently taking. As I heard Mr. Donahue, he was talking about WebCo. Understand the context of WebCo. WebCo was a situation where every one of the changes was a modification within the meaning of NSPS. And then the question is, were they also modification, major modifications Within the, within the meaning of the uh, PSD. And that's what they analyzed. So it didn't say anything about the argument we've been making, which is what is a modification. The only statements that I know of that are out there are the two Reich statements, which I just quoted to you, says exactly our interpretation. But even more powerful, at least in my view, is, is the quotation from the amicus brief from the state of Alabama and the 12 states 
that relied on the on the Region 4 statement, and that's on pages 7 and 8 of that amicus brief. And the answer, the question is, you know, how do you determine what's a modification? This is, is you know, does, does something that doesn't increase the hours, the, the emissions per hour, constitute it? It says, no, since the modification does not cause any increase in the hourly particulate emissions, no increase in annual emissions should be calculated. They could not have said that any more clearly if they were Who is saying that? Who is saying that? That is the uh, — I should know this. It's the chief of the Air and Waste Management Division, James Wilburn, giving guidance to Region 4. Region 4 is not only Alabama, it's also North Carolina and South Carolina. And then, in the wake of this, right, 1982, North Carolina and South Carolina submit their SIPs. And in their SIPs, certainly in the South Carolina SIP expressly, incorporates the concept of modification. North Carolina, a little less expressly, incorporates the entirety of the regulatory scheme under under Title 50, under under Part 51 of the Code of Federal Regulations. It looks like, I, I went back and read the Puerto Rico cement case, and it, it's, it certainly looks as if, uh, though the issue was somewhat different, it, was it looks different. as if the interpretation uh, that the EPA is taking there is not consistent with what you're reading now and is consistent with what they're saying today. And that was in um, 1988, 89, I guess they must have been starting on that in 87. So it seemed to me we have a mixed bag. Some people uh, were saying the one thing. Some people were saying the other thing. And the later in time seems to be the Puerto Rico cement, and that was at least 17 years ago. And well, what, Justice Breyer, I think Puerto Rican cement is a, is a somewhat complicated problem because what you're dealing with there is the elimination of two existing units, the two kills, and a replacement with a brand-new unit which would have been a modification under anybody — I think under anybody's theory, because there would have been an increase in the, in the hourly emissions anyway. So it would have been an NSPS subject to the PSD. It didn't get analyzed that way, but the truth is it would have been fully cons- — the way that, that decision came out would have been exactly consistent with the, the way analysis, they analyzed it. which was it. probably pretty much based on what they said, I think, was that the reason there was increased potential here to uh, uh, pollute was really because this change would permit uh, the plant to be run uh, uh, more intensively or more hours, something like that. Right, but that was based on the question of, of involving, you know, normal operations or non-normal operations. I mean, the Court really didn't have to address, and I don't think really did address, the question of how do you, re- how do you relate No, we didn't address it. No, I'm not taking it as evidence of that. I'm taking it as evidence that the EPA then had a basic position similar to what they have now. That's what I'm using it as a, a basis for thinking, that they were not saying to have a change. The word change includes only a change in physical facilities that increases the amount of emission per hour. What, am I right? or what do Well, you I, I don't think they were really arguing that particular point. I mean, that's not the way I would have read the, the argument that EPA was making. But the, the, and the bottom line is they didn't address this issue in WEBCO. To the extent they came close to addressing this issue in WEBCO, they lost it in the Seventh Circuit because WEBCO adopted an interpretation that's much closer to what we're asking for. The answer given on the other side at this point is that we should have made — we should have sought a determination. Well, the problem with that, of course, is every one of these projects was being inspected. The record is replete with examples from North Carolina and South Carolina and EPA inspectors on site looking at every one of these projects. So then they'll say your argument here, even if you're right — I think they think you're wrong, but even if you're right (laughs) — they'll say, well, that's an argument that it's arbitrary, capricious, abuse of discretion for them to change horses in the middle of the stream, i.e., for them to take an interpretation of a reg that was long-standing and without adequate notice and comment and so forth, radically reverse that right. interpretation. Yes. Now, that's not the issue in front of us now. Well, but that is the issue in front of you, I believe. Because? Because, because they say because the Fourth Circuit didn't really go on that. I went on some statutory thing and — and to be sure, but that's, that's the opinion. That's not the judgment. The judgment of the Court of Appeals is that this yeah, enforcement — this question, Mr. Phillips? <laughs> focusing on the question in the amicus brief which the EPA representative answered no, supposing the EPA had answered yes at that time, would that have been a permissible answer within the meaning of the statute? If 
I'm, I'm not sure I understood the predicate of the You know what, which question eight, seven, and eight of the, of the a source to be modified has to have a significant increase in SO2. Oh, I see. If, if, and if they the, answered no. Right. And you realize, you say they were right and it's all right. I'm just asked, want to know, under the statute, could they have answered yes, and would it then have been a permissible answer? No, our, our position would be no. That would have been an in, so inappropriate under the rationale of Justice you were misled. You're basically relying on the fact that they have interpreted the statute incorrectly. We are, yeah, actually, we're making both arguments. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, our, our basic argument is that all along they've interpreted it in a certain way, and then 19 years later, they reverse course, and that is arbitrary, Precious Justice Breyer, and it is a basis on which to defend the judgment of the Court of Appeals. Well, is, the, is what the government is saying here is that suppose the regulation can be interpreted to say X or Y. X would hurt the company, Y would not. Uh, is the government saying if it's foreseeable that the agency might take the unfavorable position, you then must challenge it in the D.C. I think that's exactly what they have to be arguing, and it seems to me that that cannot be what 307b1 means. Justice Kennedy, you asked a great question. Should we have raised this in 1980, 1992, 2000? When, when were we supposed to bring this up? And the truth is, in 1980, we interpreted the, stat, the, the regulation exactly the same way EPA did. It would have been silly for us to raise that. It is true that this issue comes up 25 years later in a bizarre proceeding, but that's not what 307B2 is all about. It says you're precluded from making a challenge in an enforcement action if the, if the action of the administrator was subject to challenge. Well, the action of the administrator was not subject to challenge in 1980. And when we did have the subsequent Rulemaking. Well, and just to pause, when, when, under your view or the Fourth Circuit's view, if you read Judge Tatel's opinion in New York versus EPA, he suggests, suggests he says that EPA adopted different interpretations of modification from the outset. And so if what you're saying couldn't have been challenged with the, was the Fourth Circuit's view, that may not be accurate. But if you're saying what couldn't have been anticipated was the argument you actually made to the Fourth Circuit, Yes. It might be a different story. Well, I think that that is precisely what we're saying. But you know, Judge Tatel, with all due respect to him, is dead wrong, because the interpretation of modification under NSPS and under the regulatory PSD was identical. I mean, the regulations couldn't be any clearer in that regard, because if you look at 15A of our appendix, you know, the modification, this is the, this is the NSPS definition. I'm sorry. Got to go back a page. 17A, 60.14 modification defines emission rate, and the emission rate is expressed as kilogram per hour. So that's absolutely clear that that's the NSPS adopts modification. That is the NSPS section. That's the NSPS section. Then you go two pages earlier to 15A, and you have the NS, the uh, PSD regulatory definition, and it comes right back to emission rate with a regulatory history that says the emission rate as used in this but provision they, is identical. They say that that provision only applies when there is no SIP, and that's not this case. Well, it, it, in the first place, it would apply in, in at least South Carolina immediately because there is a SIP that incorporates exactly the same language. And second of all, the notion that this regulation is, is, is inoperative in one side and, and fully operative in the other side makes no sense. It makes much more sense to well, recognize it's, it's, that modification is the trigger for construction, which is in the, which is in part 51-2, and that that incorporates then this entire modification language I, anyway. I don't, I don't understand that. It seems to me that each part has had different definitions, and this definition applies only to, uh, part 52, which, which applies when there is no SIP. Okay. I don't know how you can say it automatically applies when there is a set. The, the way that it would apply Part when 51, in other words. Right. Go back to then, you have to go back to 12A, I think it is, where we talk about the, the interpretation and we get to construction. This is, this is B8. Construction means a modification, okay, of an emissions unit. So that, and modification, if it's undefined in Title 51, right, according to 51.100, means whatever it means under the statute. So that just takes you back to the statute. And this is the interpretation under the statute, the 52 interpretation, is also an interpretation of the statute. So it is completely circular and brings you right back to the same definition. I agree, by its terms, it doesn't apply to 51. 
But going through the definitional provision in Part 51, through the definition of the trigger for construction, which is modification, takes you right back to the same meaning of the same provisions. So there is no difference between the two. And, and, the, and you know, to me, it's really critical. And, and I, it seems to me there are sort of two points to make here. One is nobody on the petitioner side of this case answers the state, the, the, the dozen states who say, we relied upon you when we adopted these SIPs. We realize that you are asking us to take on enormous burdens, and you should have told us that before we went down this path in the first place. Mr. Phillips, be, before you get away from this, uh, this Section 52, mm-hmm. because I think that is the best section for your case, 52.01D, is, is, there, is there any sensible reason why you would want to have a different definition of modification for non-SIP situations than you would for SIP situations? No, absolutely not. I mean, you would — you — there's no, there's no rational. And it occurred to me when, when, and, when and I and there. I've not heard the other side make an argument that there's a rational distinction between the two. And the truth is, if EPA wanted to achieve what it thought it was achieving, that is to eliminate the concept of modification, what it should have done is two things. It should have, it should have deleted 52.01, and it should have adopted the the proposed regulation that it didn't adopt from the 1979 regs. And this is on page 9 of their brief. This statement is astonishing to me. The term major modification serves as the definition of modification or modified when used in the Act in reference to a major stationary source. If they had adopted that regulation in 1980, I wouldn't have had to litigate this issue 25 years later. We would have litigated this question in 1980, because then we would have said that's flatly inconsistent with the statutory scheme because you're not entitled. You're quoting page 9? Page 9 of of their reply brief. Oh, oh, their reply brief. The the SG's reply brief. I apologize. The the gray brief. Where they they seek to get some support for the idea that modification was, was dropped out of this analysis. But the truth is that was a proposed rule that would have done exactly what they say that the 1980 rule did without adopting that particular regulation. Mr. Phillips, can I ask another sort of basic question? In your view, would it be permissible for the agency to interpret the word, to adopt a regulatory interpretation of the, in the PSD regulations of the word modification that was different from the definition it used under the new source regulation? Substantively different? Substantively different. No, I, I think that would be I think the statute required the regulation to be identical. Yes, I don't understand how it's possible that Congress says in the statute that you take the NSPS trigger. Remember, this is not just some random definition that we're talking about. Construction is the trigger for this part of this entire regulatory scheme, and modification is the trigger. And say it is as defined in it, and you did it twice. And Let me ask you, your answer is no to that. My answer is my, my <laughs> related question. I thought I said that first. Is, would it have been, Definitely no, right? Would it have been permissible, That's right, no emphasis. <laughs> would it have been permissible for the agency to adopt one definition for 10 years and then change the definition to the other definition for all programs? For all of it. Yeah. Yes, I think that, I think there is plenty of room. So that either that. definition could, con- could comply with the statute. Yes. I, th- I think as long as you maintain consistency between the two, there is a fair amount of, of discretion for so — The obvious yeah. reason to do it is, I guess, you have an area of the country, let's say, which is quite clean in the air, and there's a power plant, and what somebody works out, which is normal, is demand for electricity is increasing. Yes. And so what we'll do is we're going to take these turbines and system, and we're going to change it really radically. It doesn't produce one more particle per hour — but now we can run it 24 hours a day, and previously we'd run it 12 hours a day. So there's going to be twice as much pollution in the air. Now, the whole idea of the PSD system is you don't have twice as much pollution in the air, and I guess that's why they wanted to do it. Well, I think the, I think the premise of that is the real question is, if Congress had meant that, why would Congress have adopted the same word, modification, as the, as the construction trigger? That you, have, you, can use, you can use the same word. Uh, you, can, you can apply the same word in different places differently depending on what your basic object is in the different place. 
it's very hard to say what kind of modification might exist over here, there, and the other place. And you've put your finger on a very difficult question for power companies, uh, because those turbines do go at different amounts of rates and so forth during a day, during a month, during a year. So it's hard for them. Therefore, you have a complex definition. What's wrong with that? Because by the time the statute came up for review by Congress in the, in the PSD program, in the new source review, there was already a very extensive regulatory history about the meaning of the term modification. Well, I think what, what's wrong with it is, is that you could have achieved that same result by simply, by simply not saying that modification in one program has to mean the same as modification in the other. If you didn't say that, that would be the result. Yeah. You give modification whatever meaning you think is reasonable here. You give it whatever reading you think is reasonable in the other place. But when you say the two have to be the same, you, you, it seems to me you have something else in mind. And it also seems to me, Justice Breyer, it clearly creates an obligation on the part of EPA to be very explicit if it's in fact going to do what, you're, what you say it's going to do. You, you don't go about saying, I am going to define modification in one statute fundamentally different from the way I define modification in another statute without discussing the word modification. And, and to put this in context, you'll remember this, these regulations were adopted in the wake of the Alabama Power decision. Alabama Power didn't deal with the issue of modification. That wasn't before the Court. Nobody had challenged modifications definition. The, the hourly emissions rate <clears throat> was a perfectly valid one. What, what the Court in Alabama Power said is you can't use this threshold for major modification. And then the case comes, and so then the matter comes back, and EPA immediately adopts a new set of regulations that deal what? With what? Major modification, not with modification. And then they go through this entire elaborate analysis of major modification, none of which, candidly, do we, do we challenge. We have no quarrel with their interpretation of the concept of major modification. Indeed, if anybody does, my guess is but they environmental argue, groups would. They make the kind of interesting argument, major modification is not a subset of modifications. Yeah, and, and if, if the solicitor — and if EPA had enacted the regulation that they proposed but didn't enact — that says major modification means modification, then we might have an argument there. But the concept that when you have modification as a core baseline construction, I mean, trigger for the applicability of this portion of the, of the scheme, and then you take that same and you say, and you not only do it once, but you do it twice, and you do it in the context of an entire regulatory scheme that was designed to implement this statutorily or implement this before the statute was enacted, and you have Congress saying, well, you didn't get back right, but you did get this right. And they leave this language exactly in the way it is. The only fair inference you can draw from that, it seems why, to me. Why? Because, I mean, the language, I don't see anywhere in the statute where it, the, the words of modification are, it's a physical change in or change in a method of operation which increases the amount of any air pollutant. Now, those words, physical change, which increases the amount of any air pollutant, could mean different things in different places. Sure. Where does it say in the statute that they can't? Where it says in the statute is where it makes this specific cross-reference. Because if, if all they wanted to do was, ref, was, was get that definition, all they had to use was the word modification. They didn't have to use modification as I want to be sure I understand your position. Are you saying the statutory text, in effect, says every regulation using the word modification must employ the same definition, or are you relying on a general principle? that when the same word is used, it should be used in the same way. It, it's a general principle. Right. There's nothing it, it, in the statute itself that, that says that that principle shall apply to this case. No, but the, the, the general principle is that if the same language is used in two different portions, you presume that they have the same meaning. When you go beyond that, because otherwise what the, their interpretation renders superfluous the specific cross-references to as defined in and as used in, and while I know some don't like the legislative history, the legislative history is quite clear that they had in mind so the regulatory history as well. Your, yeah, your, your, your answer is you're not relying simply on the general principle. 
Right. Well, it's, it's not a, just that they right. used word modification in one That's place right. and the word modification right. in another. It's in the, the latter place they said modification as defined in the first right. place. It depends on which general principle I suppose you're talking about. I'm not relying on the on the mere presumption. I think this is much stronger than the mere presumption but of the reference of modification as defined elsewhere merely defines the scope of the statutory meaning. It do, that's not the same as saying every regulation that is a modification must be the same no matter what the program. I, I think in, if you read it in context, when you recognize that what Congress was doing is adopting a statutory scheme that overlays on a regulatory scheme that was well established with very specific meanings and where Congress quite clearly picked and chose, I think that's the way to say it, from, uh, from the regulatory scheme and said, we'll take these and not take those, and has a provision at the end, 168 says, all the regulations remain in effect until they get changed at some but, point. But, but just be sure I understand the point. If instead of saying, as defined in X, the second statute had merely quoted the same words that were in X, would your argument be the same? No, it would not be nearly as strong as it is. We would still have a presumption. So you're saying that if you use the definition as defined in another statute, that implicitly says all regulations defining this term must be identical? I don't know if I have to go quite that far, because I have more, I have more evidence than that in this particular case, because I have the fact that they say as used in, which suggests that it's more than just a definitional point. We do have a legislative history that seems to have in mind this regulatory background, and we've been told by EPA that when, when Congress incorporated modification, it really did incorporate that luggage baggage. Incidentally, this is very helpful to me because the government has accused you of abandoning the Court of Appeals' approach to the case, and I think you're endorsing the Court of Appeals. I, I do endorse it. I, the only question I have, I mean, I, I, I don't think that it necessarily has to be that every word has to be identical in the two provisions. But I do think they have to be congruent. And so that's the strong version of, my, of our argument, and that's pretty close to where the Fourth Circuit was. The weaker version of our argument, which gets, I think, some mileage on the arbitrary and capricious part of the argument, is at a minimum, if Congress adopts as the trigger point the same word in two statutes and EPA then purports to be implementing that statute, it has some obligation to explain how it is that they're, that they're doing a 180 with respect to the term modification. And the it's reason not just a matter of using the same word. Yes, I, I, it, you're right. It's a matter of, of, of a statute which says it shall have the same meaning. Right. They owe us some responsibility to explain how do you not follow that course. Well, could they, they have, never they have said that construction means both modification and then come up with a new word of alteration? Because the statute says the term construction includes modification. So I, uh, construct, construction can be broader. Could it be an alteration? They would come up with a new term of art and add that I, you know, absolutely. to the PSD. Could they have gotten away with that? I, I mean, that would have been a much stronger argument. It seems to me the better argument. And, and But, see, the point here is if, if they had done that or if they had done what, the, what they proposed in 1979, which is just to simply redefine major modification to be modification, then we would have taken that issue directly to the D.C. Circuit at that point in time. But it seems to me what they can't here. You have a brief filed in the D.C. Circuit, which is brief for industry petitioners on actual emissions definition. Yes. Throughout that brief, it refers again and again to the problem their proposed reg is not taking, i.e., the potential capacity, right. which is change the machine so it puts up more per minute or whatever, but rather it's uh, using actual emissions even though you don't change the capacity of the machine. Right. Now, there's a whole brief on that, so you already argued that whole brief that what they were doing was inconsistent with the statute, etc. The, the other side has not argued collateral estoppel, if that's the argument you're trying no, to make, no. Justice Breyer. Is being outside the statute at that time, and you did. Well, you have to put that into context. We're talking about a matter that was closed for 25 years and then was reopened. And this argument, and, and it is true, a, a variant of this argument was made. I don't think it's the full argument that we've made before this Court. And it was rejected by the D.C. Circuit. But I don't, if you're arguing that as a 307B argument, my answer to that is this is still not action by the administrator that would trigger a 307B bar. If you're asking about collateral estoppel, my argument no, there is they waived I was just thinking that. then you're left with what you call the weak argument, arbitrary, capricious, etc., because I don't see how you make the stronger one what you think is stronger since you made it before, or a version of it, before the D.C. Circuit. 
Well, again, if you're arguing that as a matter of collateral estoppel, then I'm — No, not collateral estoppel. But, you know, I'd be repeating myself. But, but, you, but if it's not collateral estoppel and it's not 307b2, then I don't no, That's what it is. Or you are doing it as a three. See, I don't think it — I think if you read 307b2's language, it talks about action of the administrator. And what action of the administrator are we, in fact, challenging here? Nothing. Because in our, in our view, the 1980 regulation quite clearly says what we want it to say. The only thing that's changed is that the preambles have interpreted the 1980. We challenged that, and the D.C. Circuit said, no, we're not going to address that issue. That's an issue when you get back up, when you get back in your enforcement actions. Then you can complain about that aspect of it. That issue is not right. And that is exactly what we're trying to argue in this case. And it's a variant of what I think. Mr. Phillips, can I go back for a second to the, the meaning in A includes the same meaning as in B? Is it not correct under your view of the statute that that meaning can include either of the two definitions that the two regulations uh, identify. So that either, whether you start with A or the second statute, either of them, either statute includes both alter may include both alternative regulations. As long as they're consistent? Yes. Yes. That, that, that is my position, Justice Stevens. Could you explain to me again why this isn't a 307B problem? You said this is an action by the administrator. Right. Be because the, the, there is no action of the administrator that we would challenge. The only action of the administrator was the 1980 regulation, which we interpret as not, as not modif changing modification. If you read 52.01D, clearly retains modification. We have no quarrel, then, with what, they did, with what the administrator did in 1980. Then they adopt preambles to the, to the subsequent regs. We do challenge those, but the D.C. Circuit said we're not entitled to do that. That's got to wait for an enforcement action. The only thing that's left out there is this sort of inchoate interpretation by the administrator. But there's no final action by the administrator for us, for us to challenge. And the only question would be, do we have some obligation? You can't challenge in the D.C. Circuit the administrator's interpretation that led to the enforcement action? I, I don't know how okay, that's a final action. See, the, the filing of a complaint, as this Court held in Harrison, is not final action. So that doesn't trigger it. And I don't know what else is out there for us to serve as a hook. And, and I would think at a minimum the Court would want to be very, very loath to jump on an, an expansive interpretation of 307B, where it operates in a context like this as a pure gotcha. If I, you know, you adopt regulations that nobody has a quarrel with, you change the regulation afterwards, and then you come back and you say, you can't challenge it at this point. This, that just cannot be a sensible interpretation of that, uh, of that statute. If there are no further questions, I would ask the Court to affirm the Fourth Circuit. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Mr. Donahue, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. You just can't read the 1980 regulations to achieve the result Duke is seeking here. There's no hourly rate in there, and it's important to note that these provisions that they now state misled them into their uh, non-challenge. They didn't even cite to the Fourth Circuit or the District Court. And on their face, they're not, it's not plausible that these provisions, which are totally nonspecific, were intent intended to vary the very detailed and specific instructions on how to measure an emissions increase laid out. And the preamble well, the, the one rule, in Part 52 surely does. You, you have to, you have to, it, it simply you have to says, give them that. No, I don't give them that. You don't give them that. Because it says rate and the, and the 1980 PSC regulations say that the relevant rate is tons per year. They use the word rate um, pervasively. I would also say the preamble to the rule makes pollucidly clear that major modification is EPA's definition of the statutory term. This idea that EPA, it's completely inconsistent with not only the — Major — when you say the statutory term, you mean modification? Correct. But so then why weren't those proposed regulations saying just that, adopted? I don't know the answer to that, but it's absolutely clear. EPA has never said otherwise. And, of course, the idea that an NSPS modification is required first, it would have, it would have been a big deal. There's no sign of it. And, in fact, there are specific examples. The example cited at page 23 of the government's opening brief in the preamble is a, is a PSD major modification that would not well, be that's a tough, uh, That's a tough sell, isn't it? I mean, the, the idea is you propose regulations saying major modification means modification. Those regulations are not adopted, and then the industry is supposed to be on notice that 
that's still what you mean? I, I think that there's no other reading of what EPA meant from, from the regulations. No one was confused by this, Chief Justice Roberts. No one was con- — this, this argument, it's a new argument in this Court about what, how to read the rules. The 52.01D, uh, 51.100, and uh, 51.166B8, uh, all uncited below. It's, it's really not plausible. The Court would have to abandon a lot of very basic principles of how to interpret legal texts to read the rules this way, and I think Judge Posner was right on that. Um, he was right to say this is the natural reading of the rules. I also where, where is rate defined? I'm still troubled by 5201B. Where is — you say right. rate is defined to right. include — where — Rate is used as an annual rate in 51.166B21 and B23. Okay, it's not defined. You say it's, it's just used, used that it's way. It's the only — it's tons per year consistently. The other thing I would point out, as the Court's aware, is that 307B — applies, it bars courts in enforcement actions, which includes this court. It's, it, this case is not up on cert from, from the D.C. Circuit in New York. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Donahue. The case is submitted.